So how's everybody tonight? Good? Good. Hey Noah, how are you? Oh, good. Good. If you got your Bibles with you this evening, let's check out the book of Numbers. We're going to continue to go and I'm uh, getting more and more excited as we go on. Today, the children of Israel are finally moving. They're leaving the camp. Now remember, keep in mind, let's, let's back up a little bit and, and think about what's gone on. In the book of Genesis, God gave Abraham a promise that his family, the children, his, his seed, would inherit a land that was not their own. But before they would inherit that land, they would be slaves in another land for 400 years. At the end of that 400 years, they would be released, the hand of God would be upon them, and he would usher them into the promised land. And when we went through the book of Exodus, we saw God do this amazing work, this amazing work through Moses, preparing the people's hearts that they would leave. After the plagues were over, after God gets the children of, of, of Israel out of Egypt, he takes them on a one-year journey to Sinai. That was a purposeful journey, God's plan, that part of the journey, there's no rush in. You know, many times you'll hear people talk about it being just a few-day journey, and they end up spending 40 years in the wilderness. That's true, just not yet. So the Lord takes them on this winding journey. Remember, every step of their journey, God taught them something, just like every step of our journey, God teaches us. There's no such thing, while though, although we will spend time in our wilderness, there's no such thing as a wasted year. There's no such thing as a, a wasted pain, a wasted hurt, a wasted any of that stuff. All that stuff has value because in it all, God trains us, raises us up, teaches us about who he is. And God never, the good news is God never loses patience in how long it takes us to do it. He waits. He does his work. He raises us up, and that's what he does for the nation of Israel. Now, we finished the book of Exodus, and we got to the book of Leviticus. And guess where the children of Israel were? Mount Sinai, same place where they received the law. God hadn't moved them yet. And so in the book of Leviticus, we see the Lord not only give them the law, but we see him develop for them a sacrificial system so that his people, even though they are unable to keep God's righteous requirement for life, even though they're not able to keep it, God made a way for them to still have a relationship with him. God began to teach them about the shedding of blood and the remission of sin. So over the years, they would teach their children how one day there would be a lamb that would pay the price for the sins of the world, for the sins of the nation. Looking forward to the Passover lamb promised way back in Genesis 22 to Abraham. When Abraham prophesied over the place where he offered his son, and he said, Yahweh Yideh, God will provide himself the lamb. God will be our lamb. So as they look forward, and Leviticus lays all that out for us, lays out the sacrifices, lays out the burnt offering, lays out the consecration, lays out the sin offering, all those things. And we see God speaking to his people of his righteous requirement and the holiness that God desires for our lives. Still today, God desires holiness for our lives. And still today, we will fall short, which calls us, you, me, even as they, 
to press into the Lord. That's where we'll find our holiness, in a relationship with Christ Jesus. Where did they find their holiness? Pressing into the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle a picture of? Jesus Christ. All the way through. All the way through the scripture we see it. We start the book of Numbers and they, they, they organize the camp and they get everything set and they get all the different families understanding what they're going to carry, what they're going to take, when they're going to move, how they're going to move. They've got all that set now and today is moving day. All the preparation that they've gone through up until this point has been leading them to this day, to this opportunity, to this minute. And sometimes we think once we've gone through all the preparation, we're ready. But we're never really quite ready until you're in the battle. You go to boot camp and you spend, well, in the Marine Corps, 13 weeks in boot camp. And then you go to school and learn even a little bit more about how to fight and the techniques of fighting. And you might think you know it until rounds are going down range. That's when you find out what you know and what you don't know, how it all works, how it all fits. The preparation is to get you ready to learn on the day of battle. The preparation for the children of Israel gets them ready for the battle that they're about to face. In a few days, they're going to come to a place called Kadesh Barnea, where they'll be faced with the opening to the promised land. Will we go? Won't we go? Are we, are we able to trust God that God will provide and that God will do His perfect work? Or aren't we? Are we going to be able to, to trust that God will do everything He said He would do? So as we take a look at chapter 10, that's what's going on. The children of Israel are packed up. They're ordered. They're organized. They've been cleansed and purified, set apart. They've been blessed and now they, they just, you remember last week, we're caused, pause and remember where you've come from because we're about to move forward with an opportunity to enter into the victorious life with God. In chapter 10, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You'll make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation for directing the movement of the camps. Now these two trumpets have and will always remind me of a phrase we hear in the scriptures looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and that is the last trump. There were several times these trumpets were used. And every time they were used they would come to the time of the last trump. When they were first sounding the gathering of the congregation. Then they would sound another trumpet, gather all the leaders together. Then if they were having a feast day, they would sound the trumpet. But when it was closed, when everything was done, there was the last trump. What's the Bible tell us about the last trump? When the last trump is sounded, Jesus Christ is calling us home and we will be with him forever. When the last trump is sound. The last trump. And, and he defines that last trump for us. What is unique about that last trumpet? It's the trump of God. Not the trump of angels, right? We've been through that before. It's the trump of who? God. God's trump. The last time God blew his trumpet was at Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. The last time God blows his trumpet will be when he calls the church home. 
the trump of God at the last trump, that final trump. As we look at here, we're going to see what were the trumpets used for? What were they used to do? Gather God's people. Gather God's people, move God's people, prepare God's people. So as we take a look, this is what they're doing. Now, what, what do we uniquely see about these trumpets? They were of hammered work. They were hammered, not poured into a mold, but hammered, beaten. What were they made out of? Silver. What is silver? All throughout the scripture. Silver speaks of redemption. How's redemption wrought? Through a hammering, through a beating, through, a, through difficulty. It's hammered out, and then those trumpets are used to gather his people together. Look at verse 3. Now, when they blow both of them, all the congregation will gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. When they blow both of them, all of them will gather where? The tabernacle, the door of the tabernacle of meeting. What was the tabernacle a picture of? Christ. Always, every piece, every, every stick of furniture, every part. As we take a look, it says, But if they blow only one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, they will gather to you. When you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side shall then begin their journey. When you sound the advance a second time, the camps that lie on the south will begin their journey. They shall, they, they, then, ah, they shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. When the assembly is to be gathered together, you will blow and not sound the advance. The sons of Aaron, the priests, will blow the trumpets. How many sons of Aaron were there? You guys remember? He had four sons. What happened? Two of them brought strange fire before the Lord, and they died. So how many sons does he have left? Two. So how many trumpets did they make? Two, because they were for the two sons of Aaron. Later on in the history of Israel, they're going to make more. They're going to make more because the family of the priesthood is going to grow. It's not always going to be just Aaron and his two sons. It'll always be through his family, but it won't always be just those two sons. So as we see that, we'll see that grow later on. Maybe when we get to uh, Joshua, who knows, maybe next week. But as we go, it says, Now when the assembly gathers together, you will blow these things, <clears throat> and the assembly will be gathered together. And when you blow, you will not sound the advance. So when the people talk about it, they will argue in, forever. You can go to college and, and hear people argue the entire class about what did it sound like when they sounded the advance. And what was the sound of the trumpet when they gathered the people together. And unless they were there, I don't have any idea how they have any idea what it sounded like. It's, ever, it's, it's your opinions as good as any other. The point is, that's what it was used for. The trumpets were used to gather God's people together at the tabernacle and then to move them forward. So, this is how it begins in verse 8. The sons of Aaron, the priests, will blow the trumpet, and these <clears throat> shall be to you as an ordinance forever through your generation. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Now, God often works like this. What we would really like is a big gun. Give me a big machine gun, Lord. And when the enemies come, I'll have this big machine gun. I just shoot them all. But what did God give them? They give them trumpet and faith. You blow the trumpet, I'll hear. Oh, how's that trumpet going to help? 
I could hit a couple people in the head with that trumpet, but I don't know how that's really going to do me a lot of good. You see how we can so easily begin to lean back into our flesh. How did God want the people? God wanted the people to trust in Him for everything. Trust in me. You blow that trumpet, I'll hear it. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. Sometimes still today we think God's deaf, don't we? We cry out to the Lord when we're in need of healing. We cry out to the Lord when we're in need of deliverance. We cry out to the Lord when we're in need of a variety of different things. And even as we cry out to the Lord for all those things, we're plagued by the doubt that God doesn't hear or that God doesn't care or or that God's not going to do anything. And all the while in the scripture, what does God say? He says, if you have something that you need from me, ask. Make your request known to God. And he's going to be there for you. And sometimes he'll give you strength of arm to deliver you in the victory. And sometimes he'll give you strength of faith to carry you through the valley of the shadow of death. But whatever God does, he's going to get you through from A to B. Just like he told them, you sound the trumpet, I'll hear, I'm there, I'll make sure to carry you through. He goes on to say in verse 10, also in the day of your gladness and your appointed feasts and at the beginning of your months, you'll blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifice of the peace offering and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So he said, not just when you need help, but in times of praise, blow the trumpets. In times of praise, in times of of despair and, and needing of deliverance, You blow the trumpets. You call out on the Lord. Now, how often is our calling out on the Lord only focused on one half of that equation? I call on the Lord when I'm in need of help. But I can easily forget to praise the Lord when he has delivered or in the day of celebration. Because, and this is going to be important for us as we go on, because we'll take our eyes off of the Lord and we'll put it on the storm almost every single time. So before we give Peter grief for sinking in the waves, don't forget that we're just like him. When all that stuff's going on, we'll take our eyes off, we'll look around at those things, and and when we have opportunity to forget about the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, we'll do just like the children of Israel did in the book of Judges. Times were good, life was good. You know, an, an undisputed truth in the church That tithing goes up when the economy is bad. And that tithing goes down when the economy is good. Hmm. Why is that? Because when times are good, things are happening. Hey, I I get that new boat or that new camper or the new motorcycle or the whatever. And we tend to forget about some of the other things that were important in our life when times were hard. When times were, hey, I'm no different. Listen, I learned to tithe when God took everything away from me. It was pretty easy then. It wasn't so hard. When you don't have nothing, then you know, reach in your pocket, you got five bucks, you know, 50 cents or five bucks. It was easy. And when he had 10 bucks, a dollar or 10 bucks, it was easy. And the Lord teaches us. And those times we're able to do it. But in times of plenty, when things are good, we contend to forget about the Lord. God knows that. Because God knows how we work, 
He allows difficulties in our life. And we just need to realize that's part of the human equation. We do best in our relationship with the Lord when times are tough. Has always been that way. Will continue to be that way. Well, listen. He says, Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, when the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journey. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So the, the Shekinah, remember when you see cloud, that's the word Shekinah in the Hebrew, the Shekinah glory of God began to move. And the children of Israel, how exciting was that day? I mean, let's face it, how exciting is it going to be the day Jesus calls us to be with him? Whenever it is. How exciting is that day going to be? I mean, that's going to be amazing. There, How excited must they have been to see the cloud is moving. We're going to the promised land. We're going to the place that God's been promising us. How exciting was that? So the what happens? The trumpets are going to blow, right? They're going to blow the trumpets. Time for the people to move. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And the standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first. Standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first according to their armies over the army of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar, was Nathaniel, over the army of the tribe of the children of Zebulun, was Eliab, a son of Helon. So the trumpet blows. Now, here's an important thing for us to understand. Aaron and Moses were in front. Our leaders today like to hide in the back. Didn't always used to be that way. Used to be you led by example out in front. Let's go. Sometimes we get the idea that we can, we're so important we need to stay in the back in case we get hurt. Well, that's not how they done it. They were in front. In the front, that's where they belong. They blow the trumpet and here comes Judah. Judah was first. You remember what Judah means? Judah means praise. How did God's people begin to move? Praise went first. How do we begin our services still today? Praise goes first. Praise goes first. And sometimes people don't like it. And people say, you know what? I'm going to show up after praise is over. Well, then you're kind of missing out, ain't you? Because God calls us to praise. He calls us to glorify his name. He calls us to reach out to him. And so we have praise going first. Gathering under the ensign of Judah. The trumpet is blown. And with, uh, with the Judah, along with Judah, is going Issachar and Zebulun under his banner. Then the tabernacle was taken down. And the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari set out carrying the tabernacle. Now you remember Gershon and Merari. Gershon had all the coverings. Merari had all the framework. So, so they were the ones who could use carts to move the parts of the tabernacle. So first goes Judah. Then behind Judah. First is Moses and Aaron. Judah. Behind Judah, we have uh, uh, Gershon and Merari. And then the trumpet will blow again. And the standard of the camp of Reuben... Set out according to their armies. Over the army of Elizer was the son of Shedur. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Simeon was Shilumiel, uh, the son of Jerashadai. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Gad was Eliasap, the son of Duel. So then next we have Reuben going under his ensign. 
Also with him is traveling Simeon and Gad. Now you remember what the scripture laid out for us. Every time the trumpet blew, another group would understand the move forward. So we have Moses and Aaron with the first. Then we have Judah. Then we have Gershon and Merari with the third. The fourth trumpet gets Reuben and Simeon with Simeon and Gad following. The fifth trumpet, then the Kohathites set out carrying the holy things. Now you remember there was something unique about the Kohathites, right? They didn't use carts. They carried the furniture of the tabernacle. And what did they carry it on? They bear it on their shoulders. They were to carry that by hand. Later on, David's going to get in trouble trying to move the Ark of the Covenant with a cart. But the Kohathites were to move that of the tribe of Levi. The Kohathites were to move that, bearing it upon their shoulders, carrying it by hand. And then we have another trumpet. And the standard of the camp of the children of Ephraim set out. The sixth trumpet. Uh, their armies over the army of Elishima, the son of uh, uh, Amikud, uh, over the army of the tribe of the children of Manasseh, was Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Benjamin was Abedan, the son of Gideonai. So we've had six trumpets. Seems like I've seen a bunch of trumpets like this before. Isn't there seven trumpets in Revelation? Seven trumpet judgments. What is it that the trumpets are doing in the book of Revelation? Summoning the children of Israel to their Messiah. He's going to gather the children of Israel from the four corners of the earth. With each of those trumpets, there's a judgment, sure. But what's the trumpet accomplish? It's bringing the nation of Israel together. Remember, when those trumpets are finished, the nation of Israel will be gathered. And as they're gathered together, the Antichrist is going to be coming to destroy them. Who's going to save them? Yeah, Jesus is going to save them. He's going to come. He's going to squash the efforts of the armies to destroy the children of Israel, just like he promised. You sound the trumpet. And I'll hear, and I'll come. No. He's going to come back uh, riding on a white horse. And the bride, his bride, in, in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, is going to be beside him, riding along with him. Now, Scripture goes on. It says, let's look at the seventh trumpet. Then the standard of the camp of the children of Dan, the rear guard of all the camps set out, according to their armies, over their army was Ahazar, the son of Amminashadai. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Okrin. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enan. So we see seven trumpets that would move the children of Israel. Moses and Aaron in the beginning, ending with the camp of Dan. Following behind, all the tabernacle would be gathered up. The Shekinah glory of God was now no longer over Sinai, where the tabernacle was set up. It had gone into the wilderness of Paran, and now they are following him. To be in the presence of Almighty God, remember, was their most important aspect of their life. Being in the presence. So, they're going to move forward following the encampment. They're going to go. Now listen to this. It's kind of interesting. A little side note here in chapter 10. Verse 28, thus was the order of march for the children of Israel according to their armies when they began their journey. Now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, 
We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well. For the Lord has promised good things to Israel. Listen, God's doing work. He's moving the people. The people are going and Moses doesn't want to leave anybody behind. Hey, Bab, this is part of his father-in-law's family that had been with them. And, and Moses is going to say, hey, Bab, come on, man, come with us. Come with us. We're going to the promised land. Come with us. God is doing a work. Come with us. God is doing an incredible thing. It's like this, this revival taking place among the children of Israel. And Moses, as the Spirit of God is moving, he wants to reach out and bring somebody with him. He wants to say, hey, you come. You come too. So look what happens. And he said to him, nah, I don't want to go. But I'm going to depart, go to my own land and, and to my relatives. So Moses just gave up and said, okay, well, you go ahead. Well, that's not what it says. It says, and Moses said, please don't leave. Inasmuch as you know, you know how we are to camp in the wilderness, and you can be our eyes, you can be a part of what we're doing, you understand where we're going and what's happening. And it shall be, if you go with us indeed, it shall be that whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. So Moses convinced him, and he went. Habab went. I love the picture, the idea. You see the, the, the body being gathered together, moving forward in praise, moving to find, to follow the presence of God, to be in his presence. And as they move forward to be in the presence of God, Moses is looking back and thinking, this guy's just going to go back home. He doesn't want to come with us. And Moses says, no, you need to come. You need to come and see what did the disciples say the the disciples even when they didn't know anything they knew this much come and see what jesus is doing come with me come and see come and see it's that attitude that god works within our lives when we are feeling the presence of god the moving of god's spirit we're not satisfied with leaving anybody behind we want to bring them we want to reach out to them we want to touch them with the truth of what God is doing. That's what Moses does here. Moses doesn't leave Habab behind. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day and when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the ark sent out that, the, that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. So as they're moving forward, as they would move forward for the three days journey, the, the Shekinah glory of God would once again rise from over where the Ark of the Covenant was and begin to move forward. And when God was moving, Moses would stand up. He would say, Rise up, O Lord, and scatter your enemies. What a neat thing, neat way to start your day. Rise up, O Lord, and scatter your enemies. Sometimes the enemies of the Lord are inside of us. You know that, right? But God can scatter them too. Doubt, lack of faith, unbelief. Rise up, O Lord, and scatter your enemies. Let them flee from before you and so that they would have the victory. And then at the end of the day, when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. And there... He was in the midst of the presence of the children of Israel. So at night when they would stop, 
the, the cloud of God, the Shekinah glory, would rest right over the Ark of the Covenant. And when they moved, that cloud would move forward, and he would shout out to the people, Hey, hey, go, rise up, O Lord, scatter the enemies. And they would move. And God, that's the way God would travel with his people and how he would deliver them. So how long is it going to be before the people start to complain? The next chapter. Here they come, right? Here they come. Chapter 11. Now when the people complained, oh my gosh, what are they complaining about? Now when the people complained, it it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused, so the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So the people start grumbling and complaining. Guess what? The Bible doesn't even tell us what they complained about. Why? Because most of the time our complaints aren't really worth writing down. We complain about some of the dumbest things ever. Some really lame things we can get all wrapped around the axle over. Well, this is so important, really. In the scheme of what Jesus Christ has done for us, I doubt it's all that important. But they complained, and the fire of the Lord came down and consumed some of the people outside. Now, you would think we would say, man, I don't think I want to do that. Now, what does it mean it consumes some of the people outside? Listen, don't forget this. Following Dan, behind Dan, as the people move forward, at the the outskirts of the camp, and behind Dan when they moved, was what was known as the mixed multitude. What was the mixed multitude? The people who couldn't decide if they were going to follow the Lord. They're not going to follow the Lord. Are they of Israel? Are they not of Israel? Were they fully given over or not completely given over? And when you see the complaining of the children of Israel, it is going to start in the mixed multitude. But what's interesting about complaining? It's like a fire, man. It goes everywhere. One person starts. And then you have two people doing it. And pretty soon you got a whole group of people. A bunch of people complaining about what? The Bible, don't even write it down. It just says, they just complain. God burn them. God burn them. What's the point? Complaining causes combustion. What? When you complain, it starts a little fire. And what do we know when a little fire starts? It doesn't stay little all the time. A little fire spreads, becomes a little bigger fire, spreads some more, becomes a little bigger fire. When you complain, understand, when you complain, you are sowing discord among the brethren. Why? What good is that complaining doing? When we complain... Sowing discord. In the, in the Proverbs, it tells us six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven things are an abomination to him. Uh, begins with a lying tongue. Culminates with men who sow discord among brethren. Those people who are the complainers, the gripers, the nothing's right, it's not good enough, it's not going to be okay, yippity yippity yip, something's always wrong, I always know who they are, because right above my office, if you go into my office, there's a sign above my office, you know what it says, yesterday was the deadline for all complaints, and this particular group of people, they never read that sign, 
they come in. And I, and I know it's not going to start with, well, my, what a beautiful day it is today. It's going to start with, do you know that something. Something's wrong. You need to read it. Something's wrong. Something's always wrong. And there's this bunch of complaining that goes on. So listen, God wants us to understand when you complain, it causes combustion. And it doesn't just mess with you. It messes up with all the people around you. That little fire that started causes a lot of... Listen, I know a church, personal personally know a church that split it was a horrible split the church split was so bad it ultimately went into court and they had to decide in the court who got the who got the building who didn't get the building this big rigmarole that took place that that really disrupted what god was doing in a community and affected what god was trying to do for years and years and you know how it started at a potluck yeah one of the elders got a smaller piece of meat than the child that was next to him. That was the beginning. No lie. That was the beginning of the end. And it started with complaining. We should never run to complaining. What should we do? What does the Bible tell us to do? If 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 we got a problem, if there's an issue in our life, it says, make your request known to me. Come to me with your supplications. Bring our prayers and our requests to the Lord. And the beautiful thing about prayer is that God's always going to deal with it. The problem is sometimes the problem's me. There are a lot of years when I was at Joshua Springs that I'd go to the Lord and say, God, you have got to fix Pastor Gerald. He is all messed up. He doesn't understand. He needs to do this that way. And he needs to do that this way. And I'd have all these complaints for how he ought to do things different. And then God would say, you know, Jackie, it's not him. It's you. So I'm going to work on you. And that's what he did. Now, there are other groups that will work all their time complaining, trying to bring up an uprising, trying to start trouble. Well, that's what the mixed multitude did. That's what they did. That's where it started. That's where the fire ignites first. And the the first little warning that, hey, guys, it's not okay. You're not going to find anywhere in the scripture where God says it's okay to be a complainer or a grumbler. Good luck with that one. Not there. I really like the complainers and grumblers. No, God doesn't say that. Blessed are the complainers and grumblers. No, that's not there either. Here's what he says. Scripture says, Now, then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire was quenched. So what happened? The people are complaining. Fire comes down from heaven. It begins to burn those people outside that are causing a bit of the grief. The people go, Moses, people are on fire out here. God's burning people. Things are crazy. you got to help us out. Moses prays, Lord, you know, save us. Fire goes out. Would that we would learn from first lesson experiences, huh? But, you know, we got hard heads, right? You understand that? We are bullheaded. We don't, we don't often want to learn. We don't often want to receive. We don't often want to understand. So what's the Scriptures tell us? So he called the name of the place Taberah because of the fire that the Lord had burned among them. Taberah means Burning. The place of burning. We stopped in this camp and some people got burnt. Why did they get burnt? They got burnt because of complaining. Complaining. That's what it does. There there's, seems to be 
an endless number of people who will complain and a much smaller number of people who want to do something about it. Who want to step up and say, hey, rather than complain, let me be part of a solution. Seems to be more in our nature to be among the grumblers. So what happens? Verse 4. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? (laughs) You can't have any pudding till you eat your meat. I think of that every time I read this. So... So what's the what, what's it happening? The mixed multitude, they start what grumbling again. What do they grumble about? We don't have any meat. We just have that manna stuff. How many different ways can you cook manna? Lots, huh? Manicotti, <laughs> banana bread. Yeah, there's no end. Manna burgers. We can make manna a lot of different ways, but. They're complaining. What are they complaining about? They're complaining about God's provision. God's provision isn't good enough. That's never okay. Who ultimately is in charge? The Lord. What's he going to give us? What we need. And if we don't have what we think we need, guess what that means? We don't need it. We want it. And we, like that mixed multitude, can be what? Caught up in, look what it says. Yielded to intense craving. The word in the Hebrew is ta'ava. Ta'ava means to this intense desire for something usually sinful. Ta'ava, this intense craving, was coming over the mixed multitude. And the mixed multitude began to whine. And what happened? What did we learn in that first lesson? When we start to complain, what's it do? Spreads to other people. So the mixed multitude outside the camp, they start griping. And it starts growing. And pretty soon, look what happens. This is is what their complaint was. Verse 5. We remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt. Oh, they were so good. And the cucumbers. In the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. I like garlic. Garlic's good, especially on taters. <clears throat> but now, our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. There's nothing at all except the provision that God's given. Despising the provision that God's given. Listen, as you're looking at this, it's the same thing the people said when they saw the bread from heaven. You remember who that was? The bread of life? Jesus Christ. Oh, I don't want this. I don't want this provision. I want something else. They reject him. Same way that they're rejecting the manna here. It's a sign of what is going to take place. Nothing but this manna. Now, do you remember what life was like for them in Egypt? The whole more bricks, no straw thing. The whipping on the back, the bondage, being a slave. You notice how they don't remember any of that? You know that old saying on that t-shirt that says, the older I get, the better I was? You know, we were never as good as we think we were. And things were never as good. We, we think back, we look back, and all we can remember is the kicks we have, but we forget the kick back, right? 
oh, we had so much fun. I had so much fun with all my friends. I had so much fun. We just party and have this good time. Oh, yeah. I don't ever talk about the times my head was stuck under the toilet and I didn't know how I got there. <laughs> I didn't talk about all those things because why? We forget. And we start to only think about what we think it was like. They're looking back at Egypt and they're saying, oh, Egypt was so great, so great. But listen, I heard this uh, from John Corson. He said, your memories become a mirage. I like that. Sometimes our memories become a mirage. We look back and we think we remember how good it was in the good old days. But we, we don't see clearly. Even as they didn't see clearly, right? Egypt was not all that great a place. They had fish whenever they want. When? When they weren't making bricks or building pyramids. I'm sure they were a little tired at that time to go fishing. Do they remember their children being used as bait for the alligators? Throwing the babies out? Well, they're not talking about that, right? All they're talking about is how great Egypt was. Egypt was not that great a place. Now, look what it says. Now, it describes the manna. The manna was like coriander seed. It's colored like the color of uh, bdellium. The, <clears throat> the people went about and gathered it. Ground it on millstones or beat it into mortar, cooked it in pans, made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp at the night, the manna fell on it. So the manna was always separated from the dirt by the dew. They could pick it up clean without gathering up a pile of dirt in it with it, and it tasted good. That's what it says. Like pastries with oil. It was good to eat wasn't like bad medicine. It was good to eat. But yet the people are complaining. And what happened? What happened here in verse 10? Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. How many people did he say was complaining? All of them. Moses goes walking through the camp. What started in the mixed multitudes, not being very happy about only having manna and talking about how great Egypt had spread so that every tent he walked by, he says that the men were crying at the doors of the tent. Oh, we have this manna to eat. Can you imagine that? Everywhere Moses went. So how is Moses going to respond? He's going to complain. The people are complaining, so he's going to complain about the people complaining. Wow, that's a great solution, right? That helps a lot. Whenever things are going bad, let's make them worse. So Moses is going to begin complaining. Look what he says. Everyone crying in his tent. The anger of the Lord was greatly aroused, and Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant, him? Why have you afflicted me, Lord? Why am I afflicted? Why have not I found favor in your sight that you laid the burden of all these stupid people on me? Here I am, Lord, I'm serving you. And, and why did this thing have to happen this way? You ever felt that way before? I bet you have. Oh, Lord, I was, I'm doing what you want me to do and things are all moving. But why this? Why? Why did this have to happen? Well, it had to happen for our good and God's glory. That's why it had to happen. I remember I, I was not walking with the Lord when J.C. was born. 
I was not walking with the Lord when Cole was born. But when Joseph was born, I was in Bible college for the first time in my life. I was seeking the Lord with my whole heart, desiring nothing else but whatever God had for us. We were going through hard times, but it was best times because God was with us every step of the way. And Kathy had Joe. Joe was born, the only child we named out of the Bible. The rest of the names we picked out of movies or family. Yeah, J.C. had, his name was picked when I was like 15. I told Kathy, we were dating at that time, I said, when, you know when you and I have babies after we get married, the first one's going to be named Jackie. That's a family tradition, has to happen. And she said, okay. And when we got married like years later, I held her to that promise. You said Okay. I didn't really think we were ever getting married, she always says. She says that was her excuse, but nonetheless, it happened. So J.C. becomes little Jackie Jr. And, and Cole, we were at Days of Thunder. Anybody see that? We were at Days of Thunder. What was the fellow's name driving that car? Cole Trickle. And we're sitting there watching the movie. And I go, hey, what do you think of Cole? She goes, sounds pretty good. And I said, all right. That's how Cole got his name. Joe... We poured over the Bible. In fact, between Cole and Joseph, we lost a baby. Then that baby's name was Josiah. And uh, so after, after Josiah, after Kathy uh, miscarried with Josiah, we searched through the scripture when she got pregnant again, and we come up with Joseph. God adds. And so we, we put Joseph, and I was all stoked. I had finally named a child after the Lord, and I'm walking with the Lord, and God's blessing him. And he's diagnosed with autism. And just like Moses, I said, why have you afflicted me? I'm here serving you. I'm doing what's right. And, and, and why did things have to work out like this? Now, I don't wonder that anymore. At all. Because Joe has taught me things I would only learn through having him. For example, you and me. We are autistic. What do I mean? Well, we get wrapped up in our own little world. And we don't think we really need to tell our father we love him or have any communication with him at all. Sometimes we think we don't need to even spend any time with him. We just exist in our own little world. And all the while, God, outside of our bubble, is trying to reach out to us so that we'll have some kind of relationship with him. Just like I used to reach out to Joe. And Joe would never talk to me. And Joe never said any words. And we couldn't even break into his bubble for years and years and years and years. And then one day, unprovoked, Joe comes, sits on my lap and says, I love you, Dad. And then jumped up and left. And for a brief moment, I understood what it's like to God when we finally seek Him with our whole heart. And we say to God, love you. Love you, Dad. God taught me things through Joe I could never learn any other way. There's no other way He could have taught me those things. So that's why. For my good, God's glory. The same way with this story. Moses, though, he's crying out to the Lord. He's, he's going to really ham it up here in a minute. He says in verse 12, Did I conceive all these people? Well, no, Moses. You're a, a boy. Boys don't conceive. But wait, he's going to carry that one step further. 
Did I conceive? No. Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child? It's rough. If you're Moses carrying around a group of nursing children, you're not going to be able to satisfy them children. That's what Moses is saying. I, do I have to breastfeed these babies? That's what he's saying to the Lord. Lord, I don't know why you gave me these people. Did I have to take them to the land that you swore to their fathers? Where am I supposed to get meat to give all these people? For they weep all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. Can't you hear Moses? He's not, he's not speaking in King James English. Oh, Lord. No. He's complaining, man. He's lighting it up for God. This is not good. I, I'm sick of these people. They're making me, they're a bunch of babies. I don't, but what's he doing? Is he any different than them? Nope. He's complaining. He's complaining. I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I have found favor in your sight, kill me here. You ever say, I just want to die. I just want to die. I just wish I was dead. That's what Moses is doing. Complaining, just kill me now and do not let me see my wretchedness. Guess what? That prayer, God will never answer. Why? He wants you to see it. And at the end of Moses' complaint, he sees it. That's why he says, don't let me see my wretchedness. Now I'm being just like them. I'm complaining. I'm being a baby. I'm just like they are. But God wants us to see that wretchedness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uh, speaking to us, kind of has uh, some similar things to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, verse 9, he tells us, he said to me, well, let's back at verse 7, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart. What did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. For what? My strength is perfect in your weakness. What's God want to say to Moses? My strength is perfect in your weakness. Moses says, I can't bear this. I can't do this. And the Lord's like, yeah, Mo, you're right. You can't. You need to press into me. You need to receive the strength that I have for you. You need to come to me. And God wants him to see his wretchedness. And if we see the wretchedness, if we see who we really are, what we're really about, then we come to the Lord honestly. We don't come to God complaining or trying to hide. We just come, here I am. This is me, God, and and help me and be with me. And God says, if you sound the trumpet, I'll hear you. I'll hear you, and I'll come, and I'll help, and I'll tell you this. No man will cry out to the Lord for salvation and not receive it. Nobody. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Straight up. No one is going to be lost crying out to the Lord for help. So... 
Moses says, I can't deal with this. So the Lord says to Moses, gather me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over there. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. And I will come down, and I'll talk with you there. And I will take of the Spirit that is upon you, and put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. Moses says, it's too heavy, God. I I feel like I'm all alone. So what does God do for him? God says, hey, here's what you're going to do. Gather the 70 elders, and I'm going to come down and meet with you. And I'm going to take the spirit of the Lord that's in you, Moses, and I'm going to spread it around to them too. What's that a little picture of? You know, today, in the world that we live in, the Holy Spirit works in the life of every single believer. Same spirit. In the Old Testament, it wasn't that way. The Holy Spirit empowered the people of God to do the work of God until the work of God was done, then the Spirit left. You remember David's prayer in Psalm 51? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Why did he pray that? Because he watched Saul lose the Holy Spirit in his life. The empowerment of God to do what God was calling him to do because Saul had rejected the Lord. You remember. But in the church, in this age that we find ourselves in, in the book of Joel, we, we kind of touched on lightly on Sunday. The scripture says, In the last days I will pour out my spirit on who? All flesh. Jeremiah chapter 31, what does it say? There's a new covenant coming when I will write my laws in their hearts, no longer on the tablets of stone, but on their hearts. And no man will say, show me God, for they will all know me. That covenant, the new covenant that Jesus Christ ushered in by his blood. And what do we see on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit of God poured out on 120 men. And Peter stood up and said, this is what Joel was talking about. So on that day, what happened? We entered into a time period called the last days. Isn't that what Joel said? In the last days, I'll pour pour out my flesh on all men. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that the man of sin will not be revealed, the man of sin being the Antichrist, until he who restrains is taken out of the way. Who is he who restrains? He who restrains is the Holy Spirit. Did Jesus say, I will give you the Holy Spirit and later on I'm going to take him out of your life? No. What did he say? I will give you the Holy Spirit And he will be with you forever. So if God pulls the Holy Spirit out of the way, if he pulls the Holy Spirit back into heaven and once again deals with people the way he dealt with them in the Old Testament, where the Spirit is upon them to do work, the 144,000, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. If the Lord takes his Holy Spirit, the church must go with him. Without doubt, church must go with him. Here we see Moses. He needs help. So what does God do? He pours out his Holy Spirit on the 70 elders. Interesting. You know who they become? The 70 elders? Sanhedrin. You remember anything else they did? They said, crucify him. The 70 elders of Israel. At one time... Filled with the Holy Spirit. 
But later on, not very many believers among them. Not very many. So he gathers the 70. He says, then you will say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it is well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat. Somehow I don't think this is good. Somehow I don't think this is good. What's he say? You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out your nose and becomes loathsome to you. I don't think that's good. I don't think that's good. You know, there are many times, well, I shouldn't say many times, there's at least this time and another time I I can think of in the Bible where people wanted something and God didn't want them to have and God gave it to them and it never worked out good. Never. What's the lesson there for us? If God says no, then leave it be. If God doesn't give it to you, then you don't need it. And it's not for your good, and it's not for his glory. So let it be. Let it be. Trust him that he brings into your life what you need. And he takes out of your life what needs to be taken out of your life. And you have to trust him. You have to say, I will trust you. Even I don't understand. I wish I had all the answers. I don't have all the answers, but I know every situation that happens happens for our good and God's glory. And if we become complainers and God gives us what we want, it's not going to be what we really thought it was going to be. Having meat come out my nose. That's not good. Not good. Moses said, the people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. See, Moses isn't done complaining yet. 600,000 men on foot, yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. What, shall the flocks and the herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? Moses is stuck on the, how are you going to do this, God? How can you do this? Man, I don't ever want to be caught in that place. I find myself there sometimes. For me, you know, finances is an easy way to get there. When there's plenty, it's easy. When there's not plenty, it's harder. It's harder, a little more, little more stressful, especially if you feel like God's calling you to do something and you can't quite cover what you think God's calling you to do. And the Lord says, trust me, it's all good. Beginning of this year, roughly somewhere around there, last uh, well, I guess probably at the beginning of the fall, we, we started to discover every time it rained, we had to rain inside the church. You guys remember? There we put buckets on the pews. Every once in a while you see a bucket on a pew where the rain was coming in. And we went out and we, we, we sought some contractors, three different uh, contractors gave bids. And we went through the bids and, and they were actually quite a bit of money. And I was thinking, I don't have any idea how we're going to do that. I don't know how that's even possible. But I, I just, you know, one of them times, the board of elders, we all prayed together and we said, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. We're, we're going to do it. And I thought, you know, worst case, we'll just empty everything out of savings and we'll just have nothing. But we'll, we'll be able to pay for the roof. And at the time when the roof was done, we still had, actually we had a little more in savings than when we started it. That's how God provides. How did he do that? 
I don't know. I don't have to always know the how. Here Moses is saying, how are you going to give all the people meat? We, we have to slaughter all our, our herds and, and empty all the fish out of the sea. Here, he's still not done. He's still got some issues, right? Moses is still a little agitated about the situation. I love that God doesn't lose patience with him, but look what he says. And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? <laughs> it's like, wait, when I wasn't looking, Moses, did, uh, did my arm get short so that I can't do this thing? I think the Lord's arms are okay. I didn't shorten them. Sometimes we do, don't we? God can't do this. God can't do that. So here the Lord says, my arm been shortened. Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. So Moses, just be quiet. If I said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And now you'll know if it's of me or not. So what's he do? So Moses went out, told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Remember, the center of all the camp centered around the Lord. So they're drawn near to the Lord. And the Lord came down in the cloud, the Shekinah, and he spoke to him and took the spirit that was upon him and placed him upon the same, placed the same spirit upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. The Lord poured out His Spirit, and when He poured out His Spirit, all those 70 elders begin to prophesy. And the Spirit of God is moving in them. And it was evident that God, the same Spirit that was in Moses now, is in the 70. Gathered there around the tabernacle, around the presence of God. That's where they are. Around the presence of God. Don't miss that. They're around the presence of God. But two men remained in the camp. The one of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and they were among those listed, but who had not gone to the tabernacle. Yet they prophesied in the camp. So two guys were told to go, and they said, Nah, we're not going to go. We're just going to hang out in the camp. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon them too. They were listed among the seventy. And they're, all of a sudden, they're in the camp thinking that they're going to skip out on this. The Spirit of God comes upon them, and they begin to prophesy in the camp. The Lord starts to work through them. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, the leader who's going to arise and, and lead the children of Israel, he answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Doesn't that sound familiar? Seems like we remember reading a story like that in the New Testament. The Spirit of the Lord moving uh, uh, outside of the confines of, of what they thought was tolerable. And Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? Now when I look at that, I think what Moses is saying is to Joshua is, are you really just watching out for me? Is this, is this about me? Are you, are you zealous for me or, or are, you, are you jealous? These guys are prophesying, and the Spirit wasn't on Joshua yet. It will be later, but it wasn't on him. It didn't work like it does in the church today. Joshua says, he says, are you zealous for me? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them all. That's the day we live in. When he would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord... We'll be saved. And when we're saved, what happens? The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. The Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, doing the work of God. That's what it's like today.
And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Now, a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering. Don't miss this. It left them fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on the side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. The quail were about a day's journey on one side and the other and about three feet deep. That's a lot of quail. That is a lot of quail. But where were they? In the camp? No, where were they? Outside the camp. What was happening in the camp? Moses, the 70 elders, filled with the Holy Spirit. God moving, prophesying. People coming and and, and having an opportunity to press in and draw near to the Lord. Or go outside the camp and get quail. What are you going to do? You're going to press into the Lord and see what it is that the Lord has for you, even though what you really like to have is a big old quarter pounder with cheese. But right now, the Lord is moving and God's doing something. And and do you want to be in that presence? Or do you want to go outside the camp and go feed your flesh? You want to feed your spirit? Do you want to feed your flesh? Now look what happens. And the people, they stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered quail. He who gathered least had ten omers. Ten omers is 86 gallons of quail. A lot of meat. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, Before it was chewed, the wrath of God was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. While the meat is still in their teeth. What had they chosen? I don't want to feed the flesh, or I don't want to feed my spirit, I want to feed the flesh. I want to to feed this desire, this need within me. I'm I'm hungry, I'm just going to let the cravings that I have in my life rule my life. Don't you understand? The cravings that are in your life do not need to be fed. I got lots of cravings. I think I shared with you before. I like to steal. Now, you don't want me to feed that craving, do you? Now, I like to steal ways where people didn't really know you stole anything. See, I could get on the internet and, and I find ways around things and through things and to do things so that I could do things that you're not supposed to be able to do. And I thought that was okay. Right? I mean, I really enjoy doing it. So it's okay. I should, I should feed my craving, right? I should just, if my flesh is hungry, let it eat. Because there's a whole group of people today that say, you know, I don't really like the fact that the church says that, that homosexuality is wrong. I'm born that way. I'm born with that craving. Where does it say that you're supposed to feed the cravings that you have? There was a time in my life that the craving in my life was to sleep with as many women as I could. Is that a good craving? It doesn't do nothing good. It ruins lives. It ruins everything. I'll just feed my craving. That's how I'm born. Yeah, you're born a sinner. Me too. What do we do with that? We take it to the Lord. We take it to the cross of Jesus Christ. We lay it down. We say, Lord, you're right. This is sin. But I struggle with it. And Jesus says, then I'll help you. But if I say, this is not sin, Lord. This is just how I am. 
This is just how I am. I like to steal, and it's not wrong for me to steal. Then I'm not repentant, and I'm not forgiven. It doesn't have anything to do with struggling. You understand that, right? It has to do with me saying it's okay. Sin's okay. It's just okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. We need to take, we need to, to deal with those cravings. I'm reminded of Cain and Abel. You remember Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis? Cain and Abel, and, and, and they're, <clears throat> Cain's about to, to slay his brother. You know, the whole, am I my brother's keeper baloney? What did the Bible say? The Lord said to Cain, sin is at the door, and its desire is to rule over you. And the Lord said, you should rule over it. What did he just tell him? Don't give in to your cravings. You're craving to kill your brother right now. Don't do it. Don't give in to it. Don't what? Feed the flesh. You want to know something about the flesh? It's never full. It's never full. Oh, I'm just going to drink a little bit. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're going to drink till it ruins your life. I'm just going to do a little bit of drugs. No, you're not. You're going to do drugs till you don't have a friend left on the planet. You're going you're gonna to do all kind of horrible things just to feed that craving. Oh, Lord, I just want to go get a little quail. I got a choice in the presence of God, or I can go outside the camp and just feed my flesh until it's rotten in my teeth. Kind of gross picture, isn't it? But that's what they decided. The people, especially those on the outside of the camp, those who wanted to press into the 70 elders and the Holy Spirit, they could do that. That was in the middle of the camp, right? Or they could go outside the camp and feed the flesh, and feed the flesh, and feed the flesh. And what is it that feeding the flesh brings? Destruction. Destruction. It'll destroy. It'll destroy lives. So the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So they called the name of that place Kibroth Hatabah. The graves of craving. The graves of craving. Because there they buried the people that yielded to the craving. They're just lost. We yield to the flesh. We yield to the craving. It will destroy. We yield to the flesh. Yield to the craving. It will destroy. And it did and it did. Was that the end of the complaining? No. But what did the complaining cause? It started a fire. That fire spread. Affected every person in the camp. Two and a half to three million people. Men, women, and children. Affected by this complaining. And then the craving. That craving, that desire for sin. And what is sin? Does sin just want to just sit there on the outskirts and let you play with it? It's going to destroy And that's what it did. They named the place the Graves of the Craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people moved to Hazaroth and camped at Hazaroth. And all those people that perished at that place, they didn't want to stay there no more. I don't want to stay in the Graves of Craving. Do you want to stay there? You want to stay in the Graves of Craving? I remember what my life used to be like before Jesus Christ. And I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to Egypt. I don't want to go back to the graves of craving. I don't want to be there in the place where people lose their lives. I want to say, like the Lord, what the, what the Word of God teaches me, that this is sin, it's sin. 
Does that mean I'm delivered from it? Sometimes, sometimes not. But if I take my sin and I say with the Lord, I agree with you, Lord, this is sin. So help me. And the Lord will help me. And he'll forgive me. But if I come to the Lord and say, it's not, it's not sin. I don't care what that Bible says. I don't care what that preacher says. I don't care what the people say. It ain't sin. Then you're not forgiven and you're still lost. We agree with the Lord. Sin is sin. We repent. Ask for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But what's required? I say sin is sin. That's the only thing that makes me different from those people. There's nothing different than me struggling with the desire to sin and them struggling with the desires in their life. Nothing different. If they recognize that those desires are sin, they can be saved and struggle their whole life, just like I can be saved and struggle my whole life. That's the difference, right? I have to agree. It's a craving. It's not any good for me. It's bad, and I don't want to feed it. We don't want to feed our cravings. We want to experience the promised land, right? Some of those guys, remember in the beginning, woohoo, we're going to the promised land. What happened? Many of them got buried in the graves of craving because they could not stop feeding the flesh. We need to stop. How do we stop feeding the flesh? We'll struggle with that our whole life. What do we need to do? Press into the center. What was at the center? Presence of God, the Holy Spirit, brothers, reaching out, helping, guiding, lifting up, saying it's going to be okay when we can eat manna for a little while longer. Had they been eating manna all that long? No, folks, the ones who actually go into the promised land will eat it for 40 years. These guys only been a year. I don't think they had much to complain about yet. But they missed out on everything God had. Why? They couldn't stop the craving of the flesh. How do we stop the craving of the flesh? We just give it to the Lord. Give it to the Lord. Call sin, sin. Give it to the Lord. Receive forgiveness. Get a fresh start. New day. As many times as we need it. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time. We can study your word. We thank you for the truth and the teaching that we have here in the book of Numbers. Lord God, we pray, Father, that we truly would learn how to deal with the, the cravings that are in our life and that we would understand, I don't want to complain. I don't want to spend my life griping and complaining. I want to be focused on the pure and the lovely and that which is of good report. Give me eyes to see like you see, Lord. Give me eyes to see the good. Give me eyes like Barnabas to be an encourager. I don't want to be a complainer. Nobody likes a complainer. I don't want to start a fire. I don't want to watch people perish. I don't want to watch people given over to the cravings of the flesh, which all started with an attitude of unthankfulness, an attitude of, of disrespect to the Lord for his provision. Man. I've been down that road too many times. I don't ever want to be on that road. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Lord, that means give me what I need. And that's all I want. I thank you, Lord, that you promise us. You hear our cry. So may we truly cry out to you. Receive forgiveness. Receive life. Receive the freedom from the bondage that wants to drag us just like it dragged them people into the graves of cravings. Oh, Lord, we battle against the flesh, God, but you want to set us free. I thank you in my relationship with you, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, truly knowing him with my whole heart, you declare to us in Romans chapter 8 that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you set us free. And you're in the center of the camp. And whatever we can do to press into you, press into the Holy Spirit, help us do it. And we will overcome the craving of the flesh. Lord, equip your people to do the work that you're calling us to do. Be glorified and magnified in this place, O Lord, as we lift this evening to you. We give you a sacrifice of praise for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.